I think it's only right to follow up that song with a prayer, so pray with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, you are faithful. We are thankful that never once have we ever had to walk alone. And in this fight for our lives, we pray, God, that we will always recognize whose side we're on, what we're fighting for, that we will seek to save the lost and help the wounded, to help those that feel defeated, that we may win more to you. Thank you, God. Thank you for Jake and Joyce, Nidia, Malia, Angelia, Jacob. I'm going to miss them immensely, but we pray for their new work in Bullard and thankful for this opportunity for them as well. We love you, God. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I've said this before, but you know, being from Arkansas, there are certain stereotypes that I have to overcome. The Chandlers will tell you that you have to face those being from Tennessee as well. I can tell you this, I have lived significantly, a significant amount of time in two different states, Missouri and Texas, and all the things that I've been accused of from being from Arkansas, I have run into people and places in both of those other states that would compare. So Arkansas is not unique with these stereotypes, right? But one of the things that we often get made fun of or made fun of for is the fact that we don't like to wear shoes. Right? Uh, everybody in Arkansas apparently runs around shoeless if you listen to, you know, the, the folks from out of state that accuse us of these things. And I think that's okay. I mean, who wouldn't want to be without their shoes, right? It's, it's freeing to be barefoot, to run around without your shoes on, and I do it every opportunity I get. I don't know if that's because I'm from Arkansas or whatever. But I know this for sure. Whatever activity you're engaging in, you wear the proper attire, but also your footwear plays a big part in that. Whatever the occasion, whatever the activity, every day you get up, to go to work or whatever it is you're going to do, you pick out shoes for that, right? I mean, if it's the beach, you're going to put on flip-flops. If you're going hiking in the mountains, you're going to wear certain boots. If you're, you know, going to, to work, church, whatever it is, whatever the occasion, whatever the activity, you're going to dress appropriate for it, and certainly your footwear is going to be a, a big part of that. And this is true when it comes to battle. Roman soldiers understood this. And a crucial piece of their armor was their sandals. Now, this was really tough leather that had metal spikes or cleats of iron. These sandals would allow the soldier to move swiftly over rugged and uneven terrain. It would also allow them to stand firm when they were engaged in battle. And like the Roman soldier, we too have to be prepared to fight. We are at war. If you hadn't heard that enough, you're going to hear it over the next few weeks. We are at war, and this is the fight of our lives. Our soul is at stake. Paul says as much in our signature passage we've been looking at. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and have done everything to stand firm. When General Douglas MacArthur came back from the Korean War in 1951, he reminded Congress that war's very objective is victory. 
not prolonged indecision. I think those are wise words for us as we fight this spiritual battle. Every morning, you and I wake up to fight. Each day we live in the midst of a personal battle. We cannot be indifferent. We cannot be lukewarm, as we said this morning. We cannot be neutral here. You will either defeat the enemy or be defeated yourself. There is no middle ground. You must do something, and all of it starts with preparation. One of the primary reasons why Christians are defeated, or one of the reasons why the enemy catches them off guard, is because they're just not prepared. They're not ready. They're not considering that a battle is raging. We must stand ready to fight, and being ready involves being prepared. And Paul lists the different ways in which we can prepare by listing out the different pieces of armor that we put on. Stand firm, therefore, he says, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You've heard dress for success. Maybe you've heard the phrase, you know, the shoes make the man. That statement certainly has merit. I'm not leading singing, sorry, if that's what you want. When it comes to battle, certainly the shoes make the man. We must dress for success. Fighting the devil requires that we stand firm in our faith, but it also requires that we are ready to move, sharing the gospel with others so that we will try to save as many people from being wounded or defeated in this battle. We are commanded to wear good shoes. Our footing is supplied by the gospel of Christ. And we are exhorted to slip on the sandals of salvation, the boots of benevolence, the flip-flops of faith, the, the loafers of light, however you want to phrase it. We must hit the floor running because there are people all around us succumbing to the efforts of the enemy. Casualties of war are all around us and we can sit idly by and be indifferent or we can do something. And fighting the devil is, of course, about winning souls. It's not just a personal battle. It's also a battle for others as well. In Romans chapter 10, 14 and 15, Paul writes these words. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I, I don't know about you, but when I think of beautiful things, I don't think of feet. Uh, feet are pretty disgusting, aren't they? Maybe that's because they have like uh, 250,000 sweat glands, I think is what, what I've read. I mean, they're smelly, they're stinky. There, there's a lady by the name of, of Madeline Albrecht, and one time, many, many years ago, she went to work for Hilltop Laboratories, and she was doing some testing for Dr. Scholes, you know, the, the, the footwear stuff, you know, the insoles and all that kind of stuff. She spent 15 years of her life smelling feet. That was her job, to smell feet. You think your job is bad. 
Her job for 15 years was to smell feet. She actually set a world record for sniffing 5,600 feet over her career. Feet on the move, however, are lovely. Feet that run to share the good news of the gospel are beautiful because they are carrying out Christ's mission. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that the Christian's feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our heavenly armor includes footwear that allows us to stand firm in the truth and help others get out of harm's way. We have good news for those who are defeated by sin. We have the remedy, the cure for what is ailing them. We have the cure for those who are wounded. But how will they believe if no one shares that with them? If not us, then who? We are the ones that have the good news. If we're not going to share it, if they don't have a preacher, then how are they ever going to learn? How are they ever going to hear it? Our feet may not be the most glamorous to look at, but they are beautiful when they are on the move and dressed with the gospel of peace. I want you to notice that Paul does refer to this piece of armor as the gospel of peace. Why do you think that is? Why is it the gospel of peace? Well, I think it's very simple. Sin is the antithesis of peace, which the good news is meant to alleviate, right? Sin decimates. It destroys. Sin creates conflict. It reaps discord and disharmony. Sin is inherently selfish. It's all about me. It's appropriate that the middle letter in sin is I because that's what it's all about. It's what I want, what I need. Regardless of who gets hurt, I must have what I want or what I think I need. James writes, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Sin fractures things. It fractures life. It cuts us off from God. It cuts us off from other people. Sin creates distance. It separates us from God. It separates us from other people. Sin even creates distance within ourselves sin destroys peace because sin creates conflict sin causes us to be at war with ourselves even Romans chapter 7 Paul describes this very well he says for what I am doing I do not understand for I'm not practicing what I would like to do but I'm doing the very thing I hate but if I do the very thing I do not want to do I agree with the law confessing that the law is good so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul is describing this, this internal struggle, this civil war that goes on inside each and every one of us. I know all of you can relate to these words. Sin causes us to be at war with other people. Jesus taught the golden rule. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule is the guiding principle when it comes to how we are to interact with others. But sin dismisses the golden rule. Sin creates conflict with others. Sin causes us, as I said, to be in disharmony with other people. Sin motivates one to return evil for evil. A heart filled with sin is also likely to be filled with hatred for one's fellow man. Sins like theft and assault and murder and adultery are transgressions against our neighbor that show the devastation that results when God is not alive in the perpetrator's heart. Worst of all, sin causes us to be at war with God. A holy God cannot tolerate sin, and therefore sin hinders us from enjoying fellowship with the Creator. 
Adam and Eve teach us that sin drives a wedge between people and God. It leads to spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. Y'all read the obituaries, and I don't know many of the people that are listed there, but I think how many of them went on to their reward? How many of them knew Jesus? How many of them were, were disciples? It's sad to think how many meet God unprepared. It's also sad to think how many of us are equipped with a message and a mission, but we don't carry it out. The world around us is in a constant state of unrest. You don't believe me? Just look. Just open your eyes, right? Turn on the radio, turn on the TV, open up social media. You see it around us all the time. On a, on a local scale, you see people can't get along. There's fussing, there's fighting, there's, there's, there's tension. Even within the local church, you find these things. Gossip and slander and all those things. Read the story that happened I guess it's been a few years now about uh, the Bible Bowl competition in Alabama where two parents got upset because one of them's kid didn't win and they shot him in the parking lot. I mean, a Bible Bowl competition. I mean, there's constant unrest. This world is in a constant state of disharmony. There's tension all around us. Because of this, there are multitudes that are seeking peace, and yet peace seems so elusive. Why is it so elusive? And I think the reason why is because we're not going to the source. Our world needs people who purvey peace. You know, there is a, a truth that is absolutely biblical that I think it's easy for us to overlook but it's important that not only do we grasp it, but that we help other people to grasp it as well. And it's, it's rather profound, but it's also rather simple. You ready for it? You might want to write this down. Here it is. God loves you. And you don't have to earn that. You, you don't have to do anything to merit that. In fact, you can't. God knows you. He is the genoskine geno in the Greek, the heart knower. Then think about that. God knows you. He knows everything about you. He can search you inside and out. He knows every sin that resides in every little nook and cranny of your soul. And yet, he loves you. We don't want to be truly known like that by other people because we're afraid they won't like us, and they probably wouldn't. Yet God knows every single thing about you. Nothing is hidden from his sight, and yet he loves you anyway. He died for you to show you what sin does, right? What it does to us, what it does to other people, what it does to God, the intense pain, the unthinkable suffering, the overwhelming agony, show the absolute horror and destructive nature of sin. Christ died this way to show us the ugliness of sin, and God raised Jesus, who absorbed all of it, to give us hope of another kind of life, a, a life full of, you guessed it, wholeness and peace. Christ died to overcome the world and to bring us peace. That's why he's often called the Prince of Peace. Listen to his words. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Everything we need is in Christ and it is given, not earned. When we surrender to him, when we respond in obedience and make his will our will, then we have wholeness, we have peace, and we have wholeness and peace 
that, that help us to act counterculturally. Because when this wholeness and peace resides in you, I should say it this way, when you are whole and you have peace, you function differently from the world around you because you now suddenly are the antithesis of the way the world operates. The world is in a constant state of flux and unrest and chaos. But because you're whole, because you're a person of peace, you start to return good for evil. You start to heap burning coals on the head of your enemy. You turn the other cheek. You go the extra mile. You begin to live out the Beatitudes. We can also forgive ourselves because we understand the sacrifice. We understand what Christ went through, and we understand that that was my sins that were nailed to the cross. We understand that there is such a thing as forgiveness, and therefore we forgive others because we have forgiven We look at the cross and we see our sin and what it does to God and what it does to Jesus. And therefore, we understand just how incredible his love and forgiveness is. And so we also understand that this forgiveness leads to peace. I can now love God as he loves me because I am secure in his love. I can love those who hurt me. I can love those who are hard to love. I can love without expecting a return. Rather than seeking to get you before you get me, I can now seek peace. I can actively seek the things that make for peace. In other words, I'm a peacemaker. Because now I am whole and I'm a purveyor of peace. Peace is rooted in love. Peace is motivated by love. It's a love that seeks God's will in all things. In the Greek, it's the word eirene. But in the Hebrew, it has a much deeper root and meaning than what we often think of when we think of peace. It's shalom. And shalom means completeness or wholeness. Shalom It's not only completeness and wholeness, but it it speaks of the things that make for wholeness and completeness. You see, peace is not the absence of something. Peace is the presence of something. So shalom, peace, is not just about the absence of conflict, although it can mean that. But more than that, it's about the presence of God. Jesus said you'll have tribulation in this world. Because as we talked about uh, a week or so ago... Satan is still in control. He still has a lot of power in this world. There's tribulation. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. When you're whole, you can have peace even in the midst of tribulation. It's not about the absence of a storm. It's about peace in the midst of the storm because Jesus is there. God is in control. Peace is the presence of God in one's life. And because of this, peace can be experienced even in the midst of troubles. When we place our full faith and trust in God. Peace can always be enjoyed, even in the face of trials. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace that surpasses all comprehension can only be found in Jesus Christ. It can only be discovered when we surrender our lives to God. Sin is the destroyer of peace. Sin creates conflict and turmoil. Sin separates, but Christ fixes what is broken. He puts us back together again, and he makes us whole. And I say all that to say this. We need to fight for peace. When we talk about this fight, this spiritual battle, we are fighting, among other things, for peace. For the salvation 
that brings peace. No soldier fights only for his freedom, right? We're celebrating that this weekend. Tomorrow is Memorial Day as we celebrate those who fought valiantly for our freedom. No soldier fights only for himself. He fights for his country. He fights for freedom. He fights for, for everyone so that they can enjoy the blessings of what he fought for. And certainly that is true for us as Christian soldiers. We're not just fighting for ourselves. We are, but it's more than that. We're also fighting for hope, for peace, to bring that to others, to help make others whole. The devil is destined for hell, so his objective is to take as many souls with him as possible. Because like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Satan's not concerned about you one iota. I don't think he cares about you at all. He hates God. And because he hates God, he targets the people that God loves. And if he can take as many people with hell, to hell with him, that's a victory. A victory upon victory. We know that there are a lot of casualties of war. We know that there have been, that there continue, will continue to be. There are many POWs that have been imprisoned by sin. They are suffering from a life of captivity. They are weak and broken. They are hurting and they are desperate and they need a hero. Will you be that hero? Will you be one that steps up that knight in shining armor that many so desperately need? I read the story recently about a gentleman who passed away in his home. And when authorities went in to, to kind of clear the house and recover the body, they noticed 246 exquisite violins. These were collector's items. They were, they were beautiful violins. And the deceased man's family said, yeah, he collected these violins. And somebody asked, well, could he play them? And, and one of the family members said, yes, he was an amazing violinist. He was, he was second to none in his ability to play the violin. But here's the deal. He never played for anyone. He never shared his talent with anyone. And you think about that when it comes to sharing the gospel. We have a treasured message. Our salvation is something that we should cherish. But cherishing it doesn't mean that we keep it to ourselves. Cherishing it means that we share it with others. That we let others hear it. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 and following Jesus says... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Is evangelism scary for you? I mean, it is for a lot of people. But this is a command, right? We can't allow the fear to incapacitate us. We can't allow the fear to keep us from reaching out. I'll tell you what we don't need, at least I don't think we need. I don't think we need another fancy program. I don't think we need, you know, uh, a lot of bells and whistles. I, I think most of the time our problem is not with the how. I think a lot of the time our problem is with the desire. That maybe we don't have the passion for it like we should. Converted sinners make the best preachers. No one had to tell you how to act when you went to a Cowboys game. Kind of figured it out, didn't you? If you love the Cowboys, you figure out how to root for them. 
how to cheer for them. Zane and I were cheering on our Razorbacks today as they won the SEC tournament, number one team in the nation. Nobody had to teach us how to root for the Razorbacks. We grew up doing it. And even if we didn't know, you go to a game, you could probably figure it out, right? So many times it's the desire. And when you're passionate about something, you find a way. I've told you my story of how I became a Christian. I won't bore you with that again tonight. But something I've, I've not told you is all along the way, God was working. He had his hand in it all along the way. And I didn't see it at the time. It took me a while. But as I'm older and I reflect back, I think about it. When I was just a little kid growing up uh, on South Knight Street in Paragould, Arkansas, my neighbor across the street, my neighbor behind me, the next neighbor behind them, the next neighbor catacorner to me, the next neighbor catacorner across the other way, were all members of the church. And all of them, at some point, repeatedly, would invite me over to have lunch. They would invite me to church. I had no idea what they were doing at the time. I was just a little kid. All those people I still have a relationship with today, but at the time, they were singling me out. They were trying to get me to come over so that they could influence me for good, so that they could get me to come to church with them. As I grew up, as you know, I, I ran into some issues of where I was going to church, and so I, you know, I left the priest that I beloved, that, 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 that I looked up to, you know, got in trouble, and so I left the church, and and. Then my wife comes into my life. I told her, I said, I, you know, I'm open to anything except the churches of Christ. And the reason why is because I was president of the Catholic Youth Organization for two years. And we had this thing at church called Soup and a Sermon where we invite a different preacher from town, all the other churches to come in and deliver a message. Got guest preachers. Well, the Church of Christ would never come. And so I was done with them. I didn't want anything to do with them. But I met my wife and you know, she had a way of, you know, getting me to do things that I probably wouldn't have done before. And so I went to, I went to church with her, heard Willie Sandlin preach, and it just kind of struck me. And then I get a job coaching, and, and I moved to Court Charlotte, and my superintendent is an elder in the church. I, I become a Christian there. And then four years later, the church at Batesville is looking for a youth minister. I, I tell them I'd be interested. I was only a Christian two years, and, and I go and speak to them. And, and why in the world would they hire a guy who didn't know the Bible, who put, them in, put him in charge of their kids, and he'd only been a Christian two years? Who would do something like that? And yet they said, Chris, we're going to hire you, but we're going to pay for you to go back to school. All along the way. And then I, I come to Abilene and I meet Jimmy Jividen and I, you know, and I have Larry and Ken Dozier who take me in. And it, it, all along the way, God was setting me up for this. But I tell you that story to say, from the very beginning, some people singled me out. Because they felt that I was worth fighting for. And every single one of you sitting here tonight are here because someone saw you as worth fighting for. Now, you got to go fight for somebody else. Who is it? Because all of you have somebody. All of you know somebody who needs the gospel. Not one of you in here is surrounded by every person in your family, at work, friends, that are all Christians. All of us have somebody that's worth fighting for. 
Let's make that our mission this week and beyond. How about it? If you have a need tonight that we can help you with, Jim's going to lead us in a song. Let's leave here tonight ready to go take on the world. But if you're wounded, if you're in need, let us help you tonight. There is no reason to leave here a loser. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?